0: Hi, I'm Marcus. I've been working in the area of ageing and longevity for over 25 years, both here in Australia and right across the world. And I want us to develop new thinking on getting older. Booming the podcast is about unlocking the mysteries of getting older in today's society. It's about understanding the opportunity we have to embrace our new longevity and overcome the challenges that we'll encounter along the way.
1: Well, I think your own story just becomes less interesting. (laughs) Well, actually, and and I take that, you know, I take that with a grain of salt. People react to death really differently they're processing it it's an internal process generally speaking i think when you get older you tend not to take your own dilemmas that
0: seriously mark seymour is a genuine legend of the australian music industry we know him as a singer songwriter and frontman of the iconic hunters and collectors band for almost 20 years before pursuing a wonderful solo career
1: being in a room with a parent and they die It's an incredibly moving thing. It affects you deeply.
0: He's won numerous awards and accolades and of course is responsible for some of the most revered songs in Australia's history. He's also a great family man and a champion of the cause around dementia. These people have quality of life. They have consciousness because
1: they've got this disease so they're not being kind of what you want them to be as your mother or your
0: father but they are still your mother and your father. Let's welcome to booming Mark Seymour. Thank you, Marcus. Your mum was a teacher. Dad was a teacher. I believe both your sisters were teachers as well. I think you had a stint for a few weeks in the classroom yourself. Yeah. Why did you not end up becoming a teacher? Oh, <laughs> uh,
1: that deep water's running right there. Um, <laughs> I, I think I probably would have made a a good teacher, actually. I, I think, you know, it's one of those callings. I I, I do think that it's, it's a quite a serious vocational... You've got to be devoted to it. And I think both my parents were, Um, but I think it was actually um, really quite, uh, really under our skin as a a family. I mean, like my mother's both brothers were teachers and um, it really was, it is part of our family history, you know, Um, secondary school particularly. Um, But uh, I, I just, you know, I really did want to be a singer. I did want to be a singer. Like I, and I, that kind of dawned on me sort of at the point when I actually went into the classroom. And I remember I had about, um, uh, I think it was like about six weeks at Braybrook Secondary College out in the Western Highway. And man, it was just, (laughs) I I, I lost it a couple of times and realized I can't really do this. I I, I wasn't, I was very into discipline and I just think I expected too much. And, you know, (laughs)
0: anyway. How have you approached the different, transitions in your career you've obviously gone from being in bands to a solo career you've had periods of touring and not touring a range of different phases how have you approached those different transitions
1: not particularly well <laughs>
0: <laughs> why do you say that well I th- i think that
1: it's it's really it hasn't really sunk into me until in the last few years you know and I'm not not a young man anymore but um so that the, the actual process of writing songs, it's a point of deep psychological engagement, and I don't see any difference in the process I have now than when I was twenty two or twenty three when I started. Like, it's it, there is something really quite specific about that skill set, that that encompasses your inner, your inner dialogue, and how you engage with the outside world and making that connection meaningfully. And understanding that the purpose of what a song is, in how you're engaging with some kind of emotional truth that you're sharing with other people, Mm. that whole process is actually quite fragile, and you have to study it and be really alert to it. Once you actually enter into the activity, you know you've got the guitar in your lap and you're going, what am I trying to say?" And like there are moments, and I, I, I actually think about you know the decades that I've been involved in it, and that whole question of setting up that conversation in your mind is, has not changed in all the time the whole time I've been doing it. My problem has been how I engage with the outside world. like how do I speak and communicate in a way that is going to be meaningful to other people? And that's where the problems have come. you know when I left the band, hunters and stopped when I specifically stopped writing for hunters and collectors, I had no guidance. you know I had my boundaries had gone. And I had to find out what they were again. And that was a really internal process. And when, once I found the sweet spot, which actually wasn't that long ago, I I started producing good work again, you know, but there was a period of time when, I mean, it was the same inside Hunters and Collectors there were, you know, there's, there's sort of like eight or nine songs that people remember, <laughs> you know, and it was 18 years of work and all of that came down to effective communication, like between the people in the group and, the conversations we were having and whether we all collectively understood what the purpose of the song was. All of that had to be kind of, it's had to be kind of resolved and sometimes it didn't get worked out properly. And so you'd end up recording songs, some songs which kind of got dropped very quickly. You know, you take them out into, the, into this public space and start playing them and you realize after a couple of shows, that punters aren't getting this. It's like,
0: you know, it's sort of going down like a lead balloon yeah anyway <laughs> what's the role of music in in your life as you are getting older and is your relationship to music changing as as you grow older
1: that's a good question um not really you know it's it's what i what i get from music the the things that inspire me about music i want to listen to i mean i actively listen to music and you know all kinds of music i don't have any really, I don't, well, there are some things I draw the line at, you know, there are certain forms of heavy metal that I just really don't like. Uh, um, but, but in terms of just genre and style, I don't really have any value. I don't, I don't have any hierarchy really. The thing that I respond to in music, in, in, in song music is the emotional engagement of the singer. They always go to that first, but I think most people do. Like when they hear a song, they listen to the, what's coming out of the singer's mouth, you know, that the actual physicality of that. Yes. Does that does that appeal to me? Do I feel connected with what that person's telling me? And that's the first point. And then but see at the same time I, I really love listening to Mahler and Chopin and you know, I have classical music on a lot. And that's changed. I'm much more in the last few years I listen to a lot more classical music than I used to. But I think when you're young too, when you're starting out in in rock and roll, you sort of you have the very definite reference points that are defined by your peer group because you're actually trying to kind of fit in and be, you know, credible in the eyes of your immediate peers. And so the kinds of things you talk about in relation to it's all about lifestyle, you know, and what you're doing, you know, whereas as you get older, I I think you tend to kind of be a lot more cerebral and you like, I stay for me to kind of keep making music, my horizons are massively broadened. Like I just tend to look out at the
0: world a lot more than I used to, you know. Do you, do you think that's a maturity thing in terms of being more open and, and having a, I guess a, a broader appetite to engage with different forms of music, different, ways of making music as well, perhaps?
1: Well, I think your own story just becomes less interesting. (laughs) Well, actually, and I I take that, you know, I take that with a grain of salt. Like, I'm I'm not entirely convinced that's true. But generally speaking, I think when you get older, you tend not to take your own dilemmas, your immediate short-term dilemmas that seriously in relation to other people's, because you know that the stories have been told many, many times, you know. Uh, whereas when you listen to young people performing, they're they're really concerned about these really little things, and you go, yeah, really, it's just not that interesting, you know. But that's because I'm older, you know. I'm a lot older, and I and I look. I mean, there are certain artists that who produced work in my youth that I look back and go, man, they were so young when they wrote that. That's a common refrain I have in my mind. It's, listening to music that's been written by very young people, and you go, God, they just sound so old. How could they possibly think that way? But I suppose people might say that about me in a way, you know. There's there's a sort of a there's a kind of an entitlement in writing songs, you know. You just you you're backing yourself, you know. I think people are going to like this, you sure. know. And why you have that belief, self belief, who knows, you know? But it's uh it's a very important and you know, it's a really emotional thing, you know. Like you've got to really um, believe that what you're doing is worthwhile, you know, just to begin
0: with. You have a lived experience with dementia through your mum, uh, Paula, who lived with dementia for a number of years, and you've done amazing work to, to better inform people about all that dementia entails. Can you start by sharing with us when you and perhaps your, your family members first noticed some, some changes with your mum and what, what were you identifying that was, that was different?
1: Look, I think the trajectory where it went on was pretty typical just from anecdote with other people, but the diagnosis was postponed. I know that much early on. We, they, they basically, the doctor said, look, there's no point in knowing this for sure at this stage. It's, it's really, I mean, I have no idea why he said that, but I don't think it would have made much difference, you know, in the first two or three years because, you know, she was still relatively communicative. But the, the the first crisis erupted when um, dialogue between me, myself and my sister, which kind of, you know, over a series of weekends, oh, I'm not sure how they, because it was just mum and dad out in the, the house in, um, out in Lower Templestowe. And then I got a call from my sister. She was very good. Helen was really astute, really across detail. But we just became aware that dad was kind of squibbing it, you know, he wasn't. Um, telling us the whole story, and then I can't quite remember exactly what happened. But she got off the phone to Dad, and she rang me and said, "I think there's something really wrong going on out of the house." So we drove out there, and she was in a hospital with that day. You know, the doctor said she can't go home. He's not coping. Well, I remember sitting in the in the in the surgery with the doctor and Mum and Dad and Helen and I, and Mum's just sitting at the table, and she's just really quite vacant. I mean, she's talking and she was aware that she was surrounded by loved ones, but she was just not really that aware of, she didn't understand what was going on around her. And she and we had to put her into a hospital straight away. And then from there on, from the, in the, in the weeks that followed, we were chasing it the whole time. Like we're just learning. Everything was new. Like it was just a constant process of education. And really things didn't settle down until we got her into Carnsworth in Kew. And that we got, we just engaged with the lady that ran Carnes with, I can't think of her name now, but she was fantastic and very, very, very good at communicating and was very direct with us and very sympathetic and a genuinely warm person. But not everyone was like that. You know, that, that was just the thing that yeah. we struggled with was there were these odd individuals who treated the whole process quite in a, in a perfun- perfunctory way, medical professionals, you know, yeah, and you get that, and that's and before I came. We made a decision to do this podcast. I thought that's something that really needs to be discussed because every so often you'd come across someone who was really engaged and would tell you, "No, this is what You'd ask a question and you'd get a very, very direct answer. No, this is what's going on, and this is why. And you go, oh, "Thank God, okay, that's great. We know now," and then we'd move on. You know, yeah. So there was one doctor who said something to us. It was really good. He said. You know, there's this whole, you know, question about your level of engagement with with your mother or your father, you know, how how much you try to communicate with them. And there are things you need to learn about that because sometimes just being too kind of robust and boisterous and trying to get them to be um, communicative can just bewilder the hell out of them and just make them stressed. You know, and learning stuff like that, you've really got to get that from people who are Kind of dealing. But not everyone will tell you, you know, but there was this one doctor who said, look, these people have quality of life. They have consciousness. You know, you're not getting your juice from them because they've got this disease. So they're not being kind of what you want them to be as your mother or your father, but they are still your mother and your father. I mean, I, I remember in the last few last couple of years, I would just go in and sit with her and not talk. You know, and the sun had become, it was really lovely. You know, the sun would be coming in the window and I'd just hold her hand, you know, and not speak. And I'd just drop in, I'd just whip over there and, you know, you could just walk in and you'd get your 20 to 30 minutes sitting with your mother in, the, in a sunlit room holding her hand. And, yeah. I mean, that's, how good is that? You know, and she wouldn't speak. And I, and I wouldn't even try to, I wouldn't try to elicit a response from her, you know, like, you know, I'd just stop doing that. And she knows you're there and this is what this doctor told us and was that was a really insightful and important piece of information to get i think you know but um we all sing like music's quite a big singing is a big deal in our family and uh mum responded to that fortunately because mum was right into singing too so you would just sing to her and she'd join in and she'd remember songs like words to songs but she couldn't you know communicate normally way beyond the point where she could communicate normally that that had gone but you'd start singing a song she'd go "Ah," she'd just join in and know it you know it's sort of somehow there was a receptor somewhere that was actually really reacting to the melody that she knew and she'd know the words
0: you know it must have been a special feeling to see that response
1: yeah my sister again i didn't do it (laughs) i just didn't do it but helen did it both my sisters hillary did it dad did it it was just really that's a you know very fortunate for
0: us you know the other things as well that you would point to that were actually positive aspects to that whole process you shared as a family and and obviously particularly with your mum.
1: it look it just set off once things had settled down it the whole process of her leaving us became you know i mean it's, it's a very sad thing to contemplate but it but but there was this routine and That erupted, that hadn't been there before. You just do get a lot closer, and you know, terrible as the disease is, it triggers a whole lot of social interaction that wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily have. You know, I mean, not all families are the same, of course, but and they might react to it differently. But that's definitely a plus. That that we had this, I had this personally, a very protracted period of time with my mother in a state of solitude which I would never have had if she hadn't got that disease. And I definitely felt something in that process that I wouldn't have had, you know? So life's strange like that, you know? You can kind of find good things erupting. Depends on your frame of mind though, What you, how you're predisposed to think about stuff like this. It, was, it stopped being fearful, you know? The fear went out of it.
0: What was the catalyst to move past that sense of fear,
1: it was meeting the person who ran we did the interview at Carnsworth and it was a real relief there that we got her in there because it was the right place and the 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 staff at the top the administration of it was really good that was a big shift up until then it was quite stressful which you know i don't think that's particularly unique i think that's probably what a lot of families go through because getting that right getting
0: the right institution most families understandably still very much grapple with that decision to, to move mum or dad or their loved one into permanent care and and then can often uh, have a sense of guilt or, or worry uh, upon making that decision. How did you feel as you moved through that process?
1: I think my father suffered mostly, for, more than anyone in that respect. He had a lot of guilt. Just, you know, I remember one time saying to him, terrible, you know, like I said to him, dad, I'm not interested in your guilt. It's not going to do any good. doesn't do anyone any good you know, cause you know, we, we were Roman Catholics. We grew up, you know, we were Roman Catholics, so you could find guilt under the carpet, you know, like any, you could find it anywhere, you know? Um, but dad just, oh, dad just suffered, you know, and you just have to sort of cut through that. I mean, I, I actually, and look, that was the other thing about dad too. I, I got a lot closer to dad and I, you know, my relationship with my father hasn't been great. <laughs> um, you know, when I, launched into rock and roll that was just you know my god <laughs> it was horror horror show The,
0: the stock conducive are so too many uh positive relationships with parents is it that oh uh, well you know it
1: as i said that was the other side to it you know uh, that that a long protracted period of um with going in to see mum and meeting him in the car park and walking through the door and getting in the lift and go downstairs and then we go out and have a pie and a coffee afterwards and you know it was good I really liked that, you know? It was simple. We had a common purpose. You know, there was no, we weren't focused on each other, you know, in terms of what you're doing. Like when, when, you know, decades before, it was all about, you know, the parent's relationship with the child and is the child doing what the parent wants and the child doesn't want to do what the parent wants. The child wants to do something else. That's all gone, like completely gone now because we have this other person whose needs are greater than ours, you know?
0: did you talk about death prior to your mum's eventual passing yeah we did the thing about death
1: is it, it 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 looks like something it's you know i've thought deeply about this it's the way we apprehend death like and, and the way we react to the way we mourn is incredibly personal and i i don't have any judgement on that i don't think you know, the just putting Alzheimer's aside for a moment, but the the way we just the way we discuss funerals when someone you know and you love dies, and there's other people around in your peer group who you know, like I've I've known people who died quite young, you know, and there's always this question: Are you going to go to the funeral? And you go, I'm thinking about it, but if someone doesn't go, or or has a different, and that sort of extrapolates it into the to the stage when a parent or someone who's you're very close to dies, there's people. React to death really differently. They're processing it. It's an internal process, and the death itself is really profound. You know, being in a room with a parent di- and they die. It's an incredibly moving thing. It, it affects you deeply. Now, regardless of how, because I'm I'm pretty practical. You know, like I I tend not to. Get I don't cry much. I just crawl into a corner. You know, I'm a typical bloke. I just go away and do it on my <laughs> own. But um, but the the thing that there's something incredibly privileged about being, w- and I I was with my both my parents when they died, and it's wow, man. It's you, if I look. I know this sounds really weird, but if you can, if it happens, consider yourself really lucky to have be, been there at that moment. You know. It's really incredible. It's like you're, you're, you're you, humanity is on full. It's full bore. You're seeing everything, and a, a whole lot of issues just disappear completely. You know, you it it because it shifts you. Your whole consciousness changes, and you're never the same again. You know, and it's actually as I said, it looks like something. You know, it, you see it occurring in front of you, and it's. I just think it's a huge privilege, to you know i know that might sound strange but it's actually i'm glad i was there
0: how have the experiences with your mum and your dad informed your view of your own longevity your own later life
1: <laughs> i oh uh, well my latest drama is like it's not drama really will i have shoulder surgery or not <laughs> and i've kind of decided no i'm not going to do it and
0: you know, because you're getting back into the footy career, or is it-
1: I, no? Look, I, I, you know, I just I love sport, um, so you know, I've just got to be careful because I'm not. It's just I, I tend to be a pretty I'm pretty cavalier about. I'm healthy, I'm, I'm very healthy, but uh, yes, um, but I tend to be pretty cavalier about the future in that respect. You know, like I'm 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 right. I'm, I'm surprised I still have four limbs. You know, but um, in, <laughs> in some ways, but um, yeah, no, I don't I don't worry too much about it. About whether I—I I mean, I'm probably a candidate for Alzheimer's, but because it comes comes through your mother's side, uh, and her mother had it. But there's four of it, so I mean, it could—I
0: may not get it. You know. Does it worry that you might live with dementia yourself?
1: I think that. Look, that's the really That's the that's the, that's the really difficult. That just raises the question. I'm not worried. No, I am actually not worried about it, but at all. But um, but. It does make me think that, I don't remember, maybe Helen did actually say to mum at that critical moment, you've got Alzheimer's because I don't think, I know certainly didn't. I mean, she understood that there was something wrong with her a long way out because we we had to sort of sort out, you know, powers of attorney Um, and we got all that in place well in advance, but when the wheels came off, like, and we had to actually kind of go and take control and dad had to let go and all of that stuff um happened i don't think you could have said anything to mum then that that would have made it any different because she was the disease had kind of gotten to a stage where she didn't understand she wouldn't have understood anyway you know and that's kind of that's probably the saddest thing about it really that she couldn't be reconciled with what was coming in at that moment it was only when the general atmosphere of anxiety and stress calm down things you know that's the real that's the goal I think in that whole process because you don't know how long they're going to live you know really mum lived for years um like that and the really important thing is to get everyone to calm down <laughs> you know and that they they're happier when that's another thing that doctor said, you know, that we eventually got. You know, just don't keep challenging the situation; just let it be what it is. And that they still have their their consciousness. They 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 have consciousness, even though you think they might not, but they do. And if things are calm and peaceful around them, it's they're happier. You know,
0: you've referred a few times to the the importance and value from having. A doctor a health professional you can trust and really benefit from their advice and direction what's your advice to families in terms of identifying the right sort of doctor or the right sort of health professional who you can put your trust in and you can have confidence in to help the family calm and to help everyone be able to move forward together
1: I think the first thing that comes to my brain right now you saying asking that question is listening to each other like siblings listening to each other, actively listening to what each other is saying. Because if, someone, if someone's anxious and really concerned, and I wasn't that anxious, you know, I, I was ready to do the work, but I didn't really grasp how the the emotional, I mean, you know, I just, you know, I wasn't really that ready emotionally, whereas my sister was. And she started calling the shots and I went, yep, this is it's critical, we've got to engage. There's a certain amount of intuition in that. And you have to go to that, you have to go back into the past and reconnect with your your siblings to kind of find a way forward. Because I think that there were things, mistakes I made early on that my sister had to correct. And I just wasn't aware of them as being, I did, had no point of reference, because that's the other thing. You go out and you look at all these different um, homes and institutions and they're, everything is so different. They, there's. It was just this. You get out, you know, out into the northeastern suburbs of Melbourne, and there's just so many places. I mean, it's a turkey shoot, you know, you're just driving from one to another. And I remember at one point looking at my dad, and I said, So, what do you think of that place, dad? And he just looks at me and goes, Shucks just shrugs his shoulders. and What that? I don't know. I don't know. And I thought, Oh my God. <laughs> you know, I just, I was at sea, you know. Um. So, I do think it's really important to. You know, if someone in your sibling group says, this isn't good enough, it's good. you've got to listen to that, you know, because they're expressing something that's really deeply felt because their relationship with the parent is as equally important as yours. They're just expressing it differently, but that's got to be, you've got to listen to that and be there for that for that person, you know, and you won't find a way forward otherwise. If you, And you can't retreat. You can't sort of back away and go, oh, I don't want to be involved in this. But, but in order to communicate with a medical professional in an effective way, you've got to have a united front. Like the, you, you've got to agree on what you want as a family and then you go to the person and say, look, this isn't good enough or we think that we would like this to occur. We think this person isn't really treating mum with enough respect, you know. Um, and that's really important, you know. Because the thing is someone, an administrator in a place... In one of those institutions, they won't they won't do anything unless they think you've got a problem, because they think if you're not saying anything, they they'll think it's all right. You know, they need to know because they're just that's right. They're just sort of it's all received wisdom. They're just sort of, if, you know, if you're waving your arms in front of them and going, "This is terrible," we're they'll react to that. If they if they're good at their job, they'll go, "Well, okay, what do you want us to do?" <laughs> you know, well, we want a different doctor. We just want someone who's going to be more communicative and caring and soft and more sensitive to mum's needs, whatever they are,
0: you know. Mark, thanks for being so generous in what you've shared about that, that family experience. I've got three questions to finish our conversation. The first one is, if you could talk to yourself 20 years ago, what is the one piece of advice you'd give? Jesus.
1: <laughs> uh, you know how I said active listening? Yes, <laughs> that that that's a really that's a big one, you know. That's that's been a very slow realization for me, and I think if I'd been able to be more astute and being there to engage with what people are telling me in a really meaningful and direct way, and not assume that everything that's going on around me is about me, you know, uh, that would have been good. I would have gained some time and more, had more quality time earlier on. I mean, I think I've kind of gotten to a better place eventually, but I think, you know, actively listening is a really big way through that and you you learn a lot more. It's an acquired skill. And it certainly is. Yeah, yeah, exactly right.
0: Secondly, what is the greatest thing about getting older?
1: I think you get better at communicating, really. If you... If you can go well, you know that there's a qualifier to that. If if you can grow older and be better at communicating, you're ahead. And I think that because don't underestimate the quality of your own experience because it is you learn. You know, it's you know when you get to your sixties or your fifties, your sixties, you've done a lot of stuff. You know, and there's it's interesting. You know there are things you can share with people, younger people who don't know stuff that you know. It's amazing what, don't underestimate what you know. There are things you can share with people that are worth, that are worthwhile, you know, in just about human experience. The
0: final question is, what is one thing that you hope for in your future? Uh, I want to make another album. <laughs> I, I have a name, I
1: have a title, but I'm not going to share it with you yet, but no, I'll make another album. Yeah, keep the writing going, for sure.
0: Mark Seymour, thanks for being so generous with your time and and the profound insights and experiences you've shared with us. It's been a a genuine privilege having a conversation with you. So thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to to that album coming out at some time in the future. Likewise. Thanks, Marcus. Well, Mark really shared some very personal and valuable insights from his lived experience and his experience of his family the realities of supporting a loved one living with dementia and the role that we play in that type of circumstance to know that there are positives to find in those sort of situations is really inspiring also the need to advocate and and pursue the right support can be really hard but again it's extremely important for our loved one and our family Ageing is different now, as we know more people are living with dementia and there are more systems and processes to navigate and indeed more options to take advantage of. That's why this new thinking on getting older is of such value. It's about accessing the right info to overcome the challenges and embrace the opportunities. For any assistance or advice in navigating the care and health systems or advice for planning you or your loved one's ageing journey, do get in touch with us through the booming website, booming.net.au.